Thank you, everybody, for joining us here. I'm going to start out by telling you something about me. I am the oldest person at FreightWaves. I'm actually quite proud of that. But despite that fact, I'm not going to be like this guy that I want to put up on the screen now. In the back, this is my favorite cartoon. And the reason is, first of all, I loved him dearly, but that's my father-in-law. May he rest in peace. I always had to talk him off the ledge about the next apocalyptic thing that was going to happen to a society. The fact that these things never happened never seemed to sway him. But I'm also at the age where high school and college friends, some of them are kind of falling into this category, and I'm not. And I'm giving open permission now to my friends, coworkers, and family that if I ever get to be like this guy, you can just take me in the back and finish me off. So I thought that that was when I, when I found out what I was going to be doing here uh, at the conference uh, interviewing uh, Marion Tupi, I thought that this, this uh, cartoon was highly appropriate. You could take the cartoon down now, otherwise it'll distract everybody. So uh, my guest here is Marion Tupi. He is the founder and editor of humanprogress.org. He is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and he is the co-author of the Simon Abundant Index. For those of you who know the work of Julian Simon, the late great American economist, whose essential message was that human progress will always make life better for all, uh, really what you're going to hear is is uh, marrying really kind of an ascendant of the the Julian Simon school. And, he's, and Julian Simon is somebody I've been interested in for a long time. Uh, Marion specializes in globalization and global well-being. He is also the co-author of Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. I have a copy of that right here. And uh, 10 Global Trends That Every Smart Person Should Know and Many Others You Will Find Industry. Uh, the Superabundance came out last year and the other book came out two years earlier. I also think the timing of this is really kind of interesting the New York Times op-ed piece just yesterday had a story or had a piece that was entitled, Your Brain Has Tricked You Into Thinking Everything Is Worse. So, Marion, your view, of course, and the view of really all of the people who follow the work uh, in the footsteps of Julian Simon's argument is that things are infinitely better than they had been. And, you know, in your book, you talk about so many data points that show this. Uh, I'm not going to focus in on any of them. I'll turn them over to you. What are some of your favorite data points that show the degree of prosperity that, particularly in the U.S., but also in the world, are experiencing today that the average person just really fully doesn't grasp? Yes, uh, we do suffer from uh, certain historical amnesia or maybe ignorance of history. In uh, 1700s, around the time of the American um, uh, of the American Revolution. Um, up to half of all newborns died before the age of one uh, in Europe, in Sweden. We have the longest data set for Sweden for for child mortality. And there were years where up to 50% of children died before the age of one. That's one aspect uh, of uh, modernity uh, that uh, that is just so much better than, than life in the past, because right now it's just fractions of, um, you know, maybe two or 3% of babies who, who died before the age of one, mostly because of congenital defects. In uh, 1900, at the time of um, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, um, the life expectancy in the United States, the richest country on earth at that time, was 50 years. Today, globally, it's uh, 73 years. Um, so, and Theodore Roosevelt himself, I think, only lived to 62 or something like that. Yeah, so people used to die much younger. And of course, famine was omnipresent. Um, 
everybody here, maybe for lunch or for dinner, you will have chicken. It's the most, um, uh, it's, it's considered healthy. It's one of the cheapest meats that you can get in the United States. Until about, uh, until this century, really, uh, people rarely ate chicken. Uh, it was a status symbol because if you killed a chicken, you also killed the secondary uh, product of, of a chicken, which was eggs. So you needed to be really extremely wealthy in order to signal to the world that you are so wealthy uh, that you can actually dispose of this primary, um, uh, of this uh, actually a food, pro uh, a food producing machine, essentially. And so what we have found in abundance, in superabundance, we've looked at data like that going back all the way to 1850. And just since we are talking um, about that, let, let me give you just one example. In the last 100 years, from the perspective of a blue-collar worker in America, let's say somebody making car, making a car, um, the same amount of work that earned you one chicken in uh, 1920 earned you 26 chickens in uh, 2020. So from 1 to 26, eggs increased in abundance from same, same amount of labor that got you one egg 100 years ago now gets you 36 eggs today. And uh, in the book, we go over hundreds of different commodities, foodstuffs, uh, fuels, uh, minerals, metals, etc. And we show how much cheaper they are becoming relative to, uh, relative to human wages, relative to time. Right, and the, the, the term you use for that are time prices. The amount of and and you view that in the book as this is the this is the ultimate test of prosperity. How much time do you have to put in as an average worker to generate enough income to buy whatever? So why why don't you expand on that? Okay, well, um, usually when people think about prices and try to measure stuff in prices, they will do. Well, the big crime in in uh, in the media is that they do nominal prices. They look at nominal price of oil, say in uh, 1973 or 72, and they compare it to nominal price of oil today and say, "Oh my God, you know, it's at all-time peak." Now we all know uh, not to make that mistake. We all know that we have to adjust for inflation, right? And that's when you get the real price. The problem with real price is that it only um, gives you half of the picture. It tells you what is happening to the commodity that you are looking at, the price of the commodity over time adjusted for inflation. It doesn't tell you what's happening in your wallet. So actually, productivity gains, prosperity that we enjoy, is uh, translate itself or is shown in two different ways. It's in the drop in the price of a commodity, good or a service, and also in increase in wages. When you combine those two, you get the time price. Time price basically tells you how long you have to work in order to buy something. And the beauty of time price, there are a number of reasons why it's a better way to measure what's happening in the economy. Um, one is, of course, that you don't have to adjust for inflation because you're always comparing nominal price by nominal wage in, say, 1980, and you're comparing it to nominal price divided by nominal wage in, say, 2023. And adjusting for inflation is debatable about the best tool to use that. Precisely. And so a lot of people distrust the uh, inflation measures. In fact, our own government produces two, three, even four different measures of inflation. And then you have to wonder about how the government cooks the books, for example. So it, it gets around the problem of adjustment for inflation. The other beauty of the time prices is that you don't have to exchange do exchange rates or purchasing power parity. 
um, because an hour of work or a minute of work is the same in China as it is in the United States. Um, so, and, and it's of course the same across time because time doesn't get really inflated. Um, and so it's perfectly possible to compare standards of living of somebody living in, uh, uh Cleveland in 1850, uh, to standards of living of somebody living in Cleveland in, uh, 2023, or for that matter, comparing somebody living in China today versus somebody living in Cleveland today. Um, and finally, time presses are good because they are deeply egalitarian. Everybody has only 24 hours in a day, so it really matters how you spend your time. And the fewer hours of work you have to spend to buy your porridge or, uh, or you know, your maize uh, or corn, whatever, and the more time you have to spend on other things like um, uh, I, I, I don't know, enjoying a sport or traveling the world, the better. So, so in many ways, time prices are the real prices. Now, what is the, you talked about chickens and eggs. Uh, we won't talk about which came first, but uh, what are some of your other favorite time price ratios that you think really show what uh, progress is? Well, um, in, in the book, as I said, we go over uh, 100 um, or uh, hundreds uh, different commodities. And as I said, a blue-collar work over the last hundred years, instead of one pound of uh, butter, the same uh, the, the, the same uh, amount of work that got you one pound of butter uh, will now get you 17 pounds of butter. Uh, the same amount of work that got you one pound of ham will now get you um, 14 pounds of ham. And you can, of course, extend this to also look at, uh, look at different commodities. So um, let's just see. Here we have... Um, I'm now talking about the last, uh, going back to 1850, nickel um, relative to uh, relative to human wages has decreased in time price by 99.4%. You now get 181 pounds of nickel for the same amount of work that you needed to buy one pound of nickel in 1850. So it shows you really that uh, relative to wages, everything has become less expensive including gold, platinum, and silver, including oil and gas, etc. What really is increasing in price over time is human productivity, human wages. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Let's talk about Julian Simon and talking about prices and where, you know, he became sort of famous. It was his uh, very legendary bet with Paul Ehrlich, who was a biologist, I guess he describes himself as, who was still alive today. He's 90. Julian Simon died at 68, I believe, or something like that. They're about six. Yeah. <clears throat> and in around the year 1980 or so, they placed a bet. And the I, the question at the, in the bet, the, the fundamental question in the bet was, would scarcity of resources drive up the price of resources would it, or would productivity allow it to go down? So Paul Ehrlich was really a neo-Malthusian. Um, we were going to run out of everything. We were headed toward massive starvation, this very apocalyptic view, whereas Julian Simon, as we've discussed, had a very optimistic view. So they, they put a bet on the value of five commodities. And what I've, I've been long familiar with this bet because I used to write about metals. Um, and what Marion told me earlier is that uh, 
I didn't realize that it was Paul Ehrlich that chose the five metals in the basket. Chrome, tungsten, tin, copper, and nickel. Uh, what happened with the bet? Well, before I answer that, maybe I can take 30 seconds just to explain the situation, uh, the, the global situation in which this bet was taking place. After the end of the Second World War, when best medical practices, uh, best farming practices start to penetrate uh, what used to be called the Third World, all developing countries, we have a massive increase in population. And by the late 1960s, uh, a lot of intellectuals in the West, including the United States, become convinced that we are facing a problem of overpopulation. And so we are going to have population growing at this rate, but food production is only going to grow at this rate. So food production is going to grow linearly, whereas population is going to grow exponentially. And so eventually that gap will mean that all of us are practically going to starve to death. And, and as a result of that, you've got, uh, of course, population mitigation policies like the one-child policy in China, uh, which, of course, has destroyed the Chinese population pyramid, and they are now facing the problems that we are all aware of. Um, but yes, people were definitely convinced that the world was coming to an end. Some of you may have seen the movie Soil and Green with uh, Charlton Heston. Every time a person dies, their bodies are converted into these biscuits called Soil and Green and then fed to the population that is still alive. I didn't see it, and I think I'll pass on it, actually. Yeah. Anyway. But th this was the intellectual atmosphere in the early 1970s. And, and uh, promoted by Paul Ehrlich, as I said, Stanford University biologist. On the other side of the country, at the University of Maryland, you have, you have an economist by the name of Julian Simon who is looking at the data and says, I, I don't see this. So he challenges Ehrlich to a bet. The bet is taken up. Ehrlich and a couple of people, a couple of other biologists uh, with him pick five commodities, uh, chrome, tungsten, um, etc. And the bet lasts for 10 years. And basically, it's a futures contract. If if the price of the commodities goes up, then uh, Simon has to pay Ehrlich. If the price of commodities goes down, Ehrlich has to pay Simon. And over those 10 years, uh, the gold population has increased by 800 million, uh, but uh, the commodities in question went down in price, adjusted for inflation by 36%. I mean, there was a great commodity deflation in the 80s. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And so Simon wins. The commodities go down in price by 36%, and, and Ehrlich has to send him a check. But immediately Ehrlich says, this was a fluke. It's just this decade, right? Um, over the long run, I'm still going to be right. And so, except, except let's point out that when he sent him the check, real classy guy, he sent him the check without a note. That like, congratulations, well done. They really did hate each other. On a personal basis. And there were, he, he wasn't even classy enough to give a little sort of congratulations. He just sent him a check, a cold, hard document, and that was it. Uh, it's worse than that. Actually, he didn't even sign it. He had his wife, oh, wife, right. wife signed it and, and Ehrlich signed it. Um, and immediately he was all over the news saying, basically, this bed means nothing. Uh, Simon is like a guy who is falling from a skyscraper. And when he reaches the 10th floor, he says, so far, so good. So, so this, this notion of overpopulation leading to exhaustion of resources has not gone away. And so part of the reason why we decided to write this book was to look at, does it still hold? And in fact, it holds more than ever. The more people we have, the more resources we have. This is an incredibly counterintuitive idea. And the, and the reason why it works is because human beings don't just consume resources. They, of course, produce ideas which lead to the creation or discovery 
or substitution of new resources. So actually, it's it's population that matters. Population, especially population in free countries. So people who are free, who have ideas that they can convert into inventions and innovations that increase productivity gains and increase standards of living. An important message to remember when talking about the truck driver shortage. So let's talk about the role of government here. Um, you know, a, a lot of times I'll see a list of apocalyptic things that were supposed to happen that didn't happen. So ignore everything. But one of the ones that are on there was the damage or really the potential destruction of the ozone layer. And that didn't just happen. I mean, that was a real problem. And it got solved by intergovernmental activity in limiting, I think pretty much eliminating the use of CFCs, which were viewed as very damaged to the ozone. So you're a libertarian, self-described libertarian. What is the role, though, of government in promoting an adequate supply of resources and in fixing problems that would exist otherwise. I mean, pollution is a problem. It's an externality in an economic transaction. You need a third party government to rein that in. You know, you talked about gasoline. Gasoline is 90% cleaner than it was 50 years ago. That's because of government regulations. But at the same time, the adjusted price of gasoline is not that much different than it was 50 years ago. What's your view on government? Well, I'm a libertarian, uh, which means that I do see a lot of things that the government does which create more problems than contribute to solutions. But I'm not an anarchist. Uh, I do believe that there is a role uh, for government to play in global commons when you don't have private property assigned to things like air or to things like oceans. You could get around it. Um, Iceland, New Zealand have gotten around that particular problem. But um, but so long as there are no property rights, the the, 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 the government action is is not only welcome but necessary. Okay, and then how would Cato? How would you? How would Julian Simon approach the issue of climate change? Well, uh, I think that we would put heavy emphasis on uh, technological change. Now, looking back, of course, the humanity has had in its hands for the last seventy years or so a technology which can enable humanity to produce reliably as much electricity as we could possibly want with minimum impact on the environment and zero emissions of CO2 into the atmosphere. It's called nuclear. Um, so we know how to do this. We've known how to do this for a very long time. But, and this is where the negative effects of government action come into being. Basically, American government, through our... Um, different organizations and government have actually prevented uh, creation and building of new nuclear facilities. Uh, right now, it's almost impossible and incredibly expensive to build more nuclear power stations because of overregulation, um, etc. That 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 we all know of. Um, so, so I think that people like me would emphasize the importance of technological change in in order to overcome the problem of CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. I don't deny global warming. I don't deny that it's anthropogenic. I don't deny that we should do something about it. But I think that we should do it by, by, by either building more fission reactors or spending more money on more fusion reactors. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting kind of, kind of segue. I'll be on this stage tomorrow with Matt Schrapp of the uh, Harvard Trucking Association, and we'll be talking about the California Clean Fleets Rule, you know, which is very radical. 
Um, it uh, It's going to require elimination of all internal combustion engines by depending on what calendar you use, you know, anywhere 2036 to 2042 in California trucking. And the issue here really for trucking as a whole is that California and the co- and the other states that have signed on to it are so big that they constitute such an enormous share of the market that they may sort of win because the OEMs do not want to build two, two trucks, okay? The California um, standard. Yeah, okay. So how much, though, do you see, I mean, you're, you're very amenable to the idea of human beings being able to adopt technological change, being able to provide technological change. What would you say about a system in which the government sets a standard that at first may appear to be very difficult to maintain, very difficult to reach, and yet all that human ingenuity somehow finds a way? Well, uh, historically speaking, um, the government regulations and, and standards have not been in excess of what was achievable. In other words, um, let's say that in terms of emissions um, from, from burning of gasoline or something like you are here, the government didn't make the standard over here, but made it over here, right? Just, just enough for the, for the private corporations to catch up. Um, and that, that, that what was historically happening in the United States, partly because the United States doesn't, government doesn't necessarily want to create a situation where millions of people will lose their jobs because entire industries have to shut down because you cannot meet a completely unrealistic standard. My problem is that um, it, what, what started off as a completely legitimate concern of human beings for the environment, protection of the planet, the realization that, that, that industrialization at its peak was doing a lot of harm to the environment and that the pendulum has swung too much toward productivity, economic growth without caring for the environment. That pendulum has now shifted completely to the opposite side. We are no longer looking at environmental regulations in many instances as a question of striking the right balance. But right now, we have lost completely the sight of the importance of human well-being. And now we are focusing so much on the environment that environmentalism has almost become like a religion where the negative consequences of government actions don't matter. Um, uh, nuclear is a perfect example of that. Um, uh, and, and perhaps I could come up with others. Right. No, though there are some environmentalists who I think have talked about pendulum swung back on nuclear, but not all of them. So uh, that, that has swung back to nuclear um, because primarily of the war in Ukraine and the sudden, um, sudden uh, tre- tremendous uh, recognition that we were having an energy problem. So long as the world was at peace and everything was finally tuned, mm-hmm. you could sort of see how. You could get by with gas and 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 windmills and and solar, but the moment that the system got stress tested, everything went went berserk, and so we have found a new enthusiasm for nuclear, which wasn't there two years ago. Right. Let's talk about reduced population. You mentioned China one-child policy. Really, there's nothing to discuss there. I mean, everybody, I think everybody agrees it's been a disaster, but. You have more kind of secular trends that are not coming from any kind of government mandate, and that is just reduced fertility level, uh, greater birth control, a whole lot of reasons. We all know about it. Uh, there seems to be pretty much agreement everywhere that world population will peak sometime in the next 50 to 75 years and then start a downward trend that once you start those trends, to reverse them is very, very difficult. What you know, your your essential argument is that productivity growth comes from the human mind. When you have a lot fewer human minds, 
Are there any benefits to the lower population or is it all just bad news? Well, I mean, I, I, I do think that growth matters, but I think that freedom matters as well, if not more. In fact, I do believe it, 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 it matters more. And so people should have as many children as they want. And yes, over time, you see a secular trend in, in decreasing, um, uh, uh, decreasing fertility rates uh, in large part because women who uh, have equality before the law, um, who can enter the job market, um, the, the, the opportunity cost of staying at home is just so much higher. And so women choose, as is their right, to have fewer babies. What we are saying is that um, those choices um, don't happen in a vacuum, that there are other ideas in the ether which impact, uh, or zeitgeist, which impacts how many children people decide to have. And one of them is this environmentalistic, apocalyptic doom and gloom. Uh, when you look at international opinion uh, polls, they show very clearly that parents are choosing to have fewer children because they believe that future is going to be horrible, that either we are going to run out of resources or we are going to fry to death and things like that. And so we are targeting, we are trying to make a difference on the margin. If what you are concerned with is... Uh, sort of apocalyptic doom and gloom, you don't have to be worried about it as much as you would have before reading this book. Now, there are other ways in which our government could, for example, make it easier for, uh, for people to, to have children. Uh, part of it is nimbyism. Uh, housing costs in the United States are much higher than they would be if we didn't have very stringent zoning laws and if we could build up or build more houses than, than we already do. Um, uh, child care is much more expensive than it needs to be. In Washington, D.C., you cannot take care of children uh, whilst their parents are at work unless you have a bachelor's of art degree, right? So obviously, this is a protectionist measure intended to increase the, 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 the wages of, of the caretakers and therefore increase also uh, the cost of the child care. Only had a few minutes left, but this question's got to be asked because it's so standard now at this point. Um, you know, there's AI, there's been AI around for a long time. And then, of course, there's ge generative AI, the whole chat GPT thing, which has really driven the industry, driven the issue to the forefront. Some of its creators are talking about, you know, again, apocalyptic views of what AI might do. I've got to think that you're pretty dismissive of those. How excited are you about the prospects of AI? Well, I'm very excited partly because as... Um as population is going to peak and then start declining in 2060 or so, um, you know, AI or general AI uh, and supercomputing could really help us to to generate more knowledge uh, because we are going to have fewer people generating that knowledge. Now, in a way, it's a moot question because China is not going to stop developing AI, and so we cannot fall behind. It's as simple as that. It's a, it's an existential question. So it's pointless to talk about it. Uh, but I also think that um, that it's very important moving forward and generating as much wealth as possible because we don't know what future challenges there are that are going to be facing the humanity, right? Look at what happened during COVID. We shut down the society for two years. Well, some states more than others. The point is that we have spent, so what, $6 trillion doing that. Our debt is now over 100%. Um, imagine if something like this were to happen next year and we had to go through through the same thing. We would possibly have hyperinflation. We would, we would possibly have run on the dollar and all sorts of other things. So to have a wealthier society, a more technologically advanced society, allows us to be more 
to be stronger um, and to be less fragile when future challenges arise, future challenges that are foreseeable, for example, um, next pandemic, which we know will come, or an asteroid strike, or future challenges that are unforeseeable. And I'm not going to mention any because I cannot foresee them. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole point. Uh, let me ask you again, uh, just a few minutes left. Uh, you, you look all around the world uh, and there are success stories. There are failure stories, you know, like, like, uh, having with a background in oil, I look at everything that's happened in Venezuela and it's just, it's just so frustrating and so depressing. What are some of the real success stories around the world that you think are really grasping the future and, and growing at a, at a good sustainable rate? Well, um, I mean, paying, uh, uh, you know, diminishing the, uh, for a long time, economic development was based on the idea that it's only the Western countries, the core, that are going to benefit and everybody else is the periphery and they're never going to grow. Well, uh, Hong Kong was the greatest success story before the Chinese put an end to that, before the Chinese communists put an end to that a few years ago. But that was a fishing village that, that, that became richer than, uh, than its colonial motherland, uh, Britain, uh, you have Taiwan, you have South Korea. Chile uh, was one of the poorest nations in South America, the second poorest nation after Bolivia. Now it's the richest by far. Uh, success story there starts in the 1970s. Uh, then, you have, um, then you have a question of uh, what happened in Central and Eastern Europe after the collapse of the, of the Berlin Wall. Poland is a massive success story. Um, um, it's an interesting point this morning that it was the that is considered now the most important military nation in Europe in our discussion. So that was fascinating in the European Union. Um, uh, Czech Republic. Uh, so the, here are the examples: Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Incredible examples of of how fast you can, how far you can go, and how you can improve standard of living of people in your country, provided you have the right set of policies uh, to do that. We are out of time, but we have filled all of it. I want to thank Marion Tupi of Cato and uh, Pro uh, humanprogress.org for a fascinating conversation. Again, the book is Superabundance, and, uh, and you should all go out and pick it up. Thank you very much.